Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. And in Galatians 6.14, he says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in Colossians 1, verse 28, where Paul said, where Paul said that I preach Jesus. It's him we preach. The message, the person, the, 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 the finished work of the cross, the gospel, that's what we preach. We preach Jesus, no more, no less. So that we may bring everybody into maturity or into perfection in Christ. That every person may be presented mature and fully complete in this understanding and this reliance and this faith in Jesus. And so he says that I don't boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. And what Paul is saying there is not saying that we don't love the, the people of the world, that God doesn't care, that we are gonna walk around with kind of like a religious smug arrogance saying we're not a part of you and you're not a part of us. That's, that's the spirit of the world. The spirit of division, the spirit of, 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 uh, of judgmentalism and, and self-righteousness is not a part of, those are part of the elemental spirits of this world. It's not a part of Jesus. It's not how Jesus loved and served others. And so we're not talking about uh, the fact that we're supposed to be judgmental. We're not talking about uh, that kind of idea. We're, what we're really speaking about here is something far greater than that, being dead to the world. I'm going to clarify what it means. It also doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life. It doesn't mean that you can't you know, go cycling tomorrow on the public holiday or go for a picnic in the park or enjoy creation or have hobbies. It's not talking about that. This is talking about something a little different. I remember when this statement first had a real impact on me. Uh, it was during a time of my life, I was about 21 years old, and when, growing up, I wasn't obviously, like most kids, allowed to ride motorbikes because of the danger involved. But when I was 21, I thought, you know, I'm an adult now. I got a, a key or a letter or a thing, you know, my 21st birthday. I, I'm an adult, and I can make a decision for myself as to, uh, you know, what I'm going to do. And so I decided I was going to get into motocross just a little bit because I'd never had a motorbike before. And so I found a secondhand two-stroke, 250 KTM. Um, and uh, and, I, and I, I remember going out with friends and riding the Marais, Maraisburg mine dumps out in the southwest of Joburg over these massive mine dumps and ramping hills. I nearly died several times a day. And because uh, and it was, you know, in that age, you're like, I want to be extreme. I want to push the limits, you know. For most, most young men feel that way. Will never did, um, you know. If you go to the, if you take Will to the ocean, he just sits on the beach. He says, there's no reason to go into the water. Why would we have to venture into the water with the sharks and all the other things, you know? So uh, I'm still working on him and his adventurous spirit. I have had him out of a game driving vehicle tracking cheetah on foot once. Uh, tentatively, every time I looked around, Will was falling a little bit further behind. Um, but the point is, is that in that moment of wanting to be extreme, I, I did that for a while and I pushed the limits a little bit and I realized if I push any further, I probably am going to start getting really hurt or hurting myself uh, properly at some point. And so eventually after two or three years, I sold the bike 
And, uh, but in that time, I was watching these FMX riders. It was a big thing, the backflips and the ramps. I used to throw youth events and get guys from Ride Authority, and they'd come and do backflips the, at the churchyard for a bunch of teenagers and stuff like risking their lives so that we can be like, oh, that's amazing. Um, so, but there was one guy that I watched, an FMX rider who was well-known at the time, who wrote a bold statement on his helmet. And the statement that he wrote on his helmet was dead to the world. And I always wondered about that, but it, it attracted me, the brave nature of this guy to say, you know, I am dead to the world and I want everybody to realize that I'm just not susceptible to the things that everybody else is going to be susceptible to. Now, what does that really look like to be dead to the world? Well, it looks like freeing freedom because our world constantly wants to redefine what freedom looks like what freedom is, what it means to be free. But the freedom that they seek is really captivity in disguise. The things that they pursue in order to be free, according to the culture of the world, only leads to more bondage. And we see that. Our world is increasingly broken, not getting freer or better. And so to free freedom means to tear it out of the world and let it stand alone. And the true freedom that we can live in, which is the most countercultural thing we could possibly do, is stand on and live according to the word of God and the person of Jesus. To trust in him wholeheartedly, to follow him, to walk with him. That's what real freedom looks like. That's what leads to true peace and true joy. It is the most countercultural message we can preach. There is nothing more revolutionary than the message of the gospel. And so Paul writes to this community in Colossae and he is encouraging them to not let go of Jesus and who he is to them. Regardless of the cultural pressures that they may be facing, regardless of what the plausible arguments of the day may be. And we think we're unique in this. We think that every idea that comes across us that becomes fashionable, every philosophy, every wind of philosophy that we hear, we think, wow, we are an enlightened generation. We must be one of the dumbest generations in history. Honestly, I'm not, that's not even an overstatement. We are so far from some of the learnedness and the, the understandings that, that people in antiquity came to on their journey. But we think, oh, we have, we have technology now. We have the internet now. We know stuff. No, we've actually forgotten a lot of stuff. We're busy scrolling through messages that mean nothing, that say nothing, that have no substance. And, and through all of that, there is, a, there is a culture that develops, a philosophy that is pushed an agenda that, that comes across that, that seems very plausible. In the time of Colossae, there were plausible arguments as to what freedom looks like, as to what wisdom would be, how to live wisely, and what would be the right things to pursue. And so Paul writes to the church and he says, I want you to know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. If you really want to know how to live wisely, if you really want to understand things accurately and walk in truth and live freely, then you need to hold fast to Jesus. In Him, we find all of those things. And so He wants them to be aware of this fact and so overwhelmed by it, so faithfully trusting in it, that they would not be susceptible to any kind of deception. 
that they would not be led astray in any way. He says this in Colossians 2 verse 3. He says, I want you to know that you will find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the person of Jesus. And in verse 3, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That no one may delude you. My question to you this morning is, how susceptible are you to plausible arguments? How vulnerable are you in your thinking and in your believing in regards to understanding, okay, there's Jesus and he died for me on the cross and I, and I believe that he has said some things about who I'm supposed to be in him and how I'm supposed to walk out this faith that I have. But you know, this person also has a pretty good idea. And if I you know, go onto Instagram and I watch a few videos, this seems very plausible. And we start to adopt different belief systems and different things and incorporating them into our faith. And so we end up not only letting go of Jesus, but we end up putting Jesus at the same level of all the other human philosophies. We end up equating and living it out in that way. And so... Have you assessed your vulnerability? Because sometimes it's subtle. Because if I ask you the question outright, overtly, you know, what do you trust in? It's Jesus, the Bible, the gospel. But then when we look at our lives, when we look at what we really believe and what we really pursue, we find maybe we're a little bit vulnerable to the salesman tactics of the world, to the propaganda and the, and the discipleship of the world is the world has been discipling us to believe, to adopt its beliefs. And so what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to get them to shore up their defenses, to buttress the walls of their faith and to batten down the hatches against the coming storm of this world's culture. To batten down the hatches is a, is a nautical term where a captain of a ship would see a storm coming and would say to, the, say to the crew, we need to tie down the sails. We need to close all the doors and the windows. We need to batten down the hatches. We need to secure the ship because there will be waves that will beat against it. And the real concern isn't how much the storm rages on the outside, but how much it affects what's happening on the inside. We don't want to take on water by leaving ourselves open to these kinds of, of deceptions. This is what Paul's saying to the church. I remember when I was about 16, I started a community group. And I was just sharing the gospel with my friends at school. And as I was able to, by God's grace, lead them to the Lord, I'd be like, all right, Wednesday night, you're coming over, we're doing this thing. And and this group started growing, and on every Wednesday night, I ran that group for about five years, even after we were out of school. And, and uh, every Wednesday night, at the end of, the, of, our, of our community group, I'd say, well, who has prayer requests? And there's one friend of mine, we're still friends to this day. We've been friends for over 20 years, and um, he's now a full-time missionary, serves God all over the world, um, and God has used him in amazing ways. His dad wasn't a believer when, when, when he be became saved. And it kind of created a little bit of tension because I was no longer allowed in his home because I'm the one who convinced his son of these ideas about Jesus and now he didn't want to drink with his dad anymore on the weekends. 
And so I wasn't allowed in that home for a while. And every single community group Wednesday night after the meeting, he would say, I'd say, anybody have any prayer requests? He'd say, please, can we pray for my dad? Please, can we pray for my dad? And every single Wednesday night, we, we prayed for his dad. And we prayed for him for years. And eventually he was uh, uh, living in Zambia and outside of the country on the mission field. And he contacted me and he said, Adrian, you won't believe what happened. My dad went to church. He responded and he gave his life to Jesus. A while later, there was a family event that they had and they invited me over to share something. And I went there to this event and his dad pointed at me when I walked in and says, it's you, it's all your fault. You're the one that got my son into this and now I'm saved because of you. And it was such an encouraging thing. You know, we work, we toil, we, sh we struggle and strive and strain and do it. That, that's what we struggle for. We struggle to get souls into the kingdom. And so it's so rewarding when you get those moments when somebody genuinely has accepted Jesus and, and that toil has resulted in some fruit. And I was so encouraged by that. Didn't see him for two or three years the next time I saw him, he was so keen to talk to me. He came up to me and he said, Adrian, yeah, I've been on this journey and, and it's been amazing. And also I've been reading this book called The Secret. It's all about the, the power of the universe and you can, you can talk to the universe or you do, you put out positive things and you attract positive things, the law of attraction. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, what utter stupidity. How would you take all, go from all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ Jesus in the eternal scriptures that have stood and been proven over and over again, the historical fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and everything he's done for us. And, and, and we don't need a secret. We have the secret. The mystery's been revealed. It's in Christ that we have everything. Who is the universe anyways? When did we personify it? Can you phone the, the universe and order a pizza? Does it have ears? What would those ears look like? Let's just... You know, and, and this is what happens. Like Paul is saying, you, you've, you've received Jesus. I want to say for God's sake. You received him. Why would you add the secret to Jesus? The law of attraction to Jesus. All the other empty philosophies that do not produce life. And when I say it's stupid, I'm not even overstating it. I'm understating it. The devil makes the world look like utter idiots with the stuff that he peddles and we swallow you have Jesus the mystery that was hidden for generations and for ages has been revealed to you and that hope that you walk with every day is Christ in you he's being fully formed the power of a godly life and the, and, and the Holy Spirit at work in you and through you to affect change, to, to live differently, to walk in righteousness. It's who you've become and now you wanna go and read some book written by some, some lost person in some foreign country and base your life on that. Man, we are so gullible sometimes. And, and we're not the first ones. The thing is we have powerful desires in us that if we don't trust Jesus with them, our hearts will lead us astray. They will want to buy into those things. And so it's really, really easy for the enemy to come and just leave a couple of breadcrumbs on the floor and say, come, come. Oh, I know you have that desire. Oh, I know you wanna feel important. I know you wanna feel loved and accepted. I know that you, you, wanna, you wanna be successful in life and you want people to see you as successful. Oh, I know that you're looking for fulfillment in this and fulfillment. And before you know it, he has led us 
astray. And so Paul writes to the church of Colossae, he says, listen, church, you have Jesus. And in him is every bit of wisdom and knowledge, bit of knowledge that you would ever need. So don't be susceptible to this empty philosophy and, and don't let anybody delude you with these plausible arguments. Colossians 2, 4 says, for though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul says, it is a joy to me when I can see that you are firm in your faith, that you are uncompromising, that you are unwavering, that you are steadfast. Again, my question to you this morning is, does that describe your faith? Steadfast, unwavering, uncompromising. Have you really thrown all of your weight into the person of Jesus and the, gospel, the message of the gospel? Or are you balancing the message of Jesus out with human tradition and human wisdom? So one translation says, those things that popularly pass as wisdom. As believers, we build our lives on the eternal truth of God's word. And Paul writes to the church and he says, listen church, batten down the hatches. Do not take on water. Do not let the waves and the winds of doctrine come. These empty philosophies come and shipwreck your faith. In Colossians 1, 21 verse 23 to 23, it says, and you who were once alienated in, and hostile in mind. See, the sin, the sin that's in us and that's in humanity is hostile towards God. It's not neutral. It's not like, ah, if you believe in God, that's fine. If you don't believe in God, that's also fine. No, it's actually hostile towards God. It's militant against the preaching of the gospel. Doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So even though we were previously hostile towards God, Jesus has reconciled us to the Father through his sacrifice and his death in order that he may present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. So that's who you are now. That's not something you're trying to achieve. You are holy. You're blameless. You're above reproach before God. If indeed you continue in the faith. See, that's where our blamelessness and our holiness and our being above reproach, our righteousness is settled. It is in our faith in Jesus. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So we don't shift. We don't veer off course. We don't move from the singular truth of who we are in Christ and what he has accomplished for us. It's all in Jesus. And so Paul is getting them to shore up their defenses because he knows that Satan is the originator of that storm. He writes to the church in Galatia and he says, you were running so well. You put your faith in Jesus. You, you were running so well. Who cut in on you? Who got you to go off course? Who, who hindered you in your running after Jesus? Last week we read where he says, in the same way that you received Jesus, so walk in him. Don't let people come and convince you of otherwise. And that is the enemy's tactic, is to get you off course, to get you away from trusting in Jesus. We've all seen this quote 
which is a bit of a nonsense quote, sounds very cool, but it's theologically makes no sense at all. Um, the devil whispered in my ear, you're not strong enough to withstand the storm. This is that human bravado. And I whispered back, I am the storm. You are not the storm. What does that even mean? Right? We don't boast in anything but who we are in Christ. If I was going to respond to the devil, I would respond in this way. If he said, you're not strong enough to withstand the storm, I would just whisper back grammatically, it's your, okay? You're not strong enough, right? So if you're gonna threaten me, just use the correct grammar at, at the very, very least. But the point is that Satan is out to delude you. He is out to deceive and mislead you. And the one thing that he hates more than absolutely anything else is the gospel. He hates it. The message of God's grace that would take sinners that he would own hook, line, and sinker have been set free to walk with God, to fulfill their purpose, to live meaningful lives purely because God did it for them and made it available to them is a message that he cannot stand and cannot defeat. It is his Achilles heel is the message of the gospel. And so he will do everything in his power to keep people from understanding and walking in the grace of God. Religion, he's okay with, by the way. He can work with religion. If you say, hey, I'm gonna be religious, he's like, we can work with that. That's not so threatening to me. While you're being religious, I'll add in a little bit of pride. I'll throw in some self-righteousness. I'll get you to trust in a little bit of your rule keeping. And before you know it, you've been cut off from Christ. I can work with religion. Galatians 5.4 says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been cut off from Christ. You've been alienated. You've become a stranger to Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I used to think that falling away from grace, or when the Bible says, look at what height you've fallen from, when Jesus speaks in Revelation, look at the height from which you have fallen. I used to think that that meant because I've sinned so badly. But my definition of sin was too narrow. I thought sin was just doing bad things. You know, like what people would normally think of, like stealing and, and getting drunk, dancing on tables, supporting the bulls, you know, any of those <laughs> sinful things. I used to think that those were the things, but actually this is saying, when you are trying to be very good and very religious and trying to justify yourself by the law, you have fallen away from Jesus. Incredible. That's exactly what the enemy wants. And so he'll do anything in his power to keep you from walking in the power and the freedom of the gospel. And so what he does for our world over and over again is that he continually redefines freedom. He takes it and he, he bends it into a snare, into a trap. Like Peter writes, I think it's 2 Peter 3 where he writes and he says that some have twisted the scriptures to their own destruction. We've redefined the scriptures for our generations. They know the scriptures didn't mean that, it actually meant this. And we do that to our own destruction. We become caught up in it. And he wants to catch all those who would see a freedom apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus. Again, in Galatians, Paul writes in 
verse 6 and 7, and he, uh, six and, uh, to verse 8, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're deserting Jesus. He called you in grace. And you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is only one gospel and all other gospels are distortions or perversions of the gospel. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven come and preach any other gospel than the one that you've heard from him, uh, from us, let him be anathema. Let him be cut off. Let him be accursed. Satan will do everything in his power to keep people from hearing the gospel, including you this morning. Everything in his power to seed ideas that are contrary to the gospel about what you need to be free and to be fulfilled. I've seen it so many times when I'm witnessing to people about Jesus. I'm trying to tell people about the gospel. You know, you get those moments where, where everything comes together and you get to sit with somebody. You just get to share the gospel with them. And, and you can see that they're beginning to hear you. They're beginning, their hearts are opening up. And in that moment, so many times I've witnessed a distraction will come in. The craziest thing will happen. You know, a truck will drive through your living room wall. Something just like someone will fall out of a tree in your yard and break an arm. Like, I mean, your kids will have an emergency or your boss will phone or, your, or something will happen. But whenever you're trying to share the gospel, the enemy is there to create a distraction. He'll do it in our lives daily as we try to lean in to the gospel of God. The same thing happened to Martin Luther. We've been talking about Martin Luther a little bit. I had a bunch more of these books here this morning. They've all been sold out again, uh, which is really awesome. But Martin Luther was a German theologian and reformer uh, who lived in the 1500s and had a revelation of what I'm speaking to you about this morning. The grace of God and how religion had moved away from trusting in Jesus. And so he wrote some letters to the church that got that got spread far and wide and, and he began to publish certain works and certain commentaries on the Bible and he translated the Bible into German, which was unheard of at the time and, and he did all of these things and it led to one of the greatest revolutions in human history. And so he got into trouble for preaching that message. He got into trouble with the church at the time because he was speaking about the fact that we are saved by grace alone and that God's word is the final authority and that even the popes and the councils of the church are finally or are, are, are ultimately subject to the truth of God's word. And so for saying this, he was excommunicated and then he was summoned to appear at a council meeting where he would have to, where he would have to defend or, or recant on his position. And their hope was that he would recant um, and they wouldn't have to prosecute him any further. And so they summoned him to what was known as the Diet of Worms. Now, Diet it was a, a theological council. It didn't mean what you ate. And Worms in English is spelt worms. So a lot of people think it was the Diet of Worms and that people were eating worms when they went there. But really, it's the Diet of Worms, which was this place in Germany where he had to go and make a defense and he said, it is neither safe nor right for me to go against what God has shared with me, the truth of God's word. Unless you can show me in the scriptures that what I'm teaching is wrong, I cannot recant. 
He said, here I stand, I can do no other. And so while he was on his way to the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther didn't realize how much, there was no copyright back in the day. Like the printing press had only been invented like 50 years earlier. And so people just copied his stuff and shared it far and wide. And he was shocked to find out as he was traveling on his way uh, to Worms, how many crowds gathered every time he was speaking. But he writes to one of his friends about every place he went to and how the devil tried to create a distraction in each place. At one point, he writes about a town that they came to named Gotha. And the very moment he was at the crux of his message and he is sharing righteousness by faith with these crowds of people that have gathered to hear God's word. And at that moment, some stones at the top of the tower of the church's steeple that had been there for 200 years through wind and weather, never been disturbed, in that very moment he was preaching that message, they became detached and fell loudly to the ground, distracting everybody from the message. The devil does not want people to hear about their freedom in Christ. He doesn't want them to know. Another time the balcony got so full of people that it started to creak and people started to panic. And they started to actually dig out the pane windows to jump out to save themselves. And again, Martin Luther was convinced this is the enemy. He told him, can you just stand still? The balcony will hold. And it did. At other times, he, he, was, he had uh, issues with his travels or he got physically sick or certain things. And each time he knew the enemy does not want the message of grace to be received or to be preached. As the Holy Spirit speaks the gospel of Jesus to your heart, and brings the flow of God's power to your life, it's important that you realize that the devil will, without a shadow of a doubt, throw stones. He will bring distraction and diversion. And he does it in two main ways that I want to talk about this morning. Now, we all know that the devil doesn't have a pitchfork. Can we just theologically agree? There are no pitchforks. I know Man United's devil has one, but the devil doesn't have a pitchfork. But if he did, it would have two points. If he could throw stones at your faith, he would throw two specific stones. The grace of God is the narrow road that we read about in the scriptures. Because it is so easy, we are so easily deceived into self-effort. And so to remain in God's grace, to remain in faith, steadfast, firm in the faith, is a narrow and difficult road at times. We want to trust in ourselves. We want to trust in other things. And if Satan could dig ditches to, to, for us to fall into, he would dig one on either side of this road, two ditches, one to the left and one to the right. The first point or the first stone or the first ditch would be licentiousness. And the other one is legalism. So next to the, the road of God's grace that we're all called to walk in and trust in, We've got licentiousness on one side and legalism on the other side. Paul says, I want you to batten down the hatches and not take on these lies. In Colossians 2.8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. 
See to it. Make sure, church, that nobody takes you hostage and captive by philosophy and empty deceit, which is according to human tradition. But then he clarifies further. The human tradition and what is known as human wisdom originates from the elemental spirits of this world. It has a demonic origin. It has an origin in the flesh or in sin. And these things are not according to Christ. So the culture of our day, whatever the latest philosophical idea is, is not in accordance with Christ. And we're not to adopt those, creating some sort of a polytheistic religion where we worship Jesus along with all the other philosophies of, of the world. Because they're according to the elemental spirits, not according to Christ, which leads to licentiousness. So what is licentiousness? In short, licentiousness comes from the word to give license. And in the biblical meaning of this word, licentiousness means to take God's grace or the gospel that you've heard and to then pervert it or distort it to mean that you can live however your flesh dictates. Whatever you feel like living, whatever other philosophies you want to adopt, whatever other things you want to also believe in along with Jesus, you can do that because you're covered by the grace of God. So it takes God's grace as an opportunity for sin, but it's not real grace that does that because grace is Jesus and Jesus doesn't lead us into sin. It's only the perversion of grace that leads us into sin. Jude 1 verse 4 says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Certain teachers and, and, and believers have come in amongst the flock of God and they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God. So please don't ever say that the preaching of grace leads people into sin. You can say the perversion of grace leads people into sin because that's what the scriptures say. These ungodly people pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So they don't accept Jesus as sovereign and as Lord. They are ultimately their own gods that want the benefit of grace or forgiveness while choosing for themselves how they'll live and who they'll be and what they'll believe. And what that, what, what that is, what that amounts to, according to the scriptures, is a denial of Jesus. So you cannot add anything to Jesus. You cannot say it's Jesus plus. I believe in Jesus plus the secret or universalism or polytheism or, or whatever other dumb thing you could make up. It's a denial of Jesus. When we allow the elemental spirits of this world and the human traditions and philosophies and the culture of the day, along with all of its plausible arguments, to rise to the same level of Christ, as Christ, we've effectively denied him. I don't care what your latest psychology, I mean, these days, these days, uh, you know, any science is, like, you don't even know what is science anymore. There used to be some sort of consensus, but now everybody has an agenda. And everybody twists the latest study, says this, the latest study was you and three friends that were sitting in a bar. 
you, you, when, you, when you read a scientific study these days, you first have to go and read about their f- the, the group who did the study and find out what their political affiliation is to try and figure out what agenda they're pushing. And so, oh, the, the, the latest psychology shows that, psychological study shows that if you really want to raise children well, then you actually need to let them this and this and that. And I don't know if, if, if I'm getting older or if the world's getting worse, but either way, I just feel so much more countercultural these days than I ever have before. We just can't stand for it. The devil's playing with us. And we've been as gullible in the church oftentimes and adopted those things as some sort of a distortion of the gospel. We do not raise anything to the same level of authority of Christ. We do not allow our fleshly desires to rival God's authority in our lives. Because if we do, we're taking on water. We're taking on water. And this will be the result. 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, holding fast to the faith. There it is again. We hold fast to the faith. Leaning completely on God. Completely, with absolute trust and confidence in His guidance. And having a good conscience. For some have rejected this and have made a shipwreck of their faith. They've shipwrecked their faith because they rejected the idea of leaning your complete weight on Jesus. Trusting completely in God. The moment we entertain these additions and we start having many gods and and we start making up rules for ourselves. If you're, if, you're, if you're single and you're dating and you're saying, well, I can live with my boyfriend because God's grace will, will cover me for that. Or I can be a Christian. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to listen to the scriptures that tell me that I should be in church in order to, you know, I don't need to do that in order to be a Christian. The moment we start playing fast and loose with the eternal word of God, then Jesus isn't really your Lord. You're your own God and you've just included Jesus politely in your circle. And that was the original deception. The original deception to Adam and Eve was, no, God didn't say that. He didn't, surely you won't die. No, no, no. If you eat of this, you will be like God. That was the original. Why do I need God when I can be God? It's still the same old trick. Why do people not want to receive the free gift of God in His grace? Why, do they, why are they so hostile towards it? Well, I want to be my own God. And, and, our, and you, it's not hard to see the humanism in all that. It's the original deception. Don't let anybody tell you how to live your life. Be the captain of your own soul. <laughs> Decide for yourself what makes you happy. I can tell you now, it's going to be a shipwreck. It's going to be a shipwreck. You will find the opposite of all those things to be true. So the scriptures say, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. 
leaning completely on God with absolute trust and confidence in his guidance. One translation says, leaning the entire human personality on God in absolute trust and confidence. Everything that you are. Don't fall for that deception, church. The idea of licentious, I can do what I want or I can adopt what I want or I could put Jesus in the same room as all these other things that I worship. The second one is legalism. So you've got licentiousness on one side. The other one is legalism. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15, it says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him, over them in him. And this is really talking about the fact that we as human beings that are sinful inherently had all fallen short of the glory of God. We had all broken God's holy laws, his standard of righteousness. All of us had broken those laws. None, there's not a person who hasn't sinned. And the word Satan actually means from the Hebrew, accuser. The Bible says he's the accuser of the believers. He lives to accuse. He's like a lawyer who stands in court and says, but you broke God's law, didn't you? So you can't walk with God. And I'm sure he would taunt God and say, look at this person, they just sinned again. They're cut off from you. You're a holy God. I know they're unholy, so I own them. You can't have them. In other words, we were all claimed. We belonged. We were slaves to sin and death. And the devil owned us. And he could mess with us as much as he wanted. But the Bible says what Jesus then did was he took that debt that we owed to the law, all the ways, all the things that we had done wrong in breaking the law and all the debt that we would have had to have paid in order to be made right with God again. Jesus took all of that debt and nailed it to the cross in his own body. And so doing that, he paid the price for our sin. The debt was paid. The word redemption means to be bought back at a price. So he paid the price you could never have paid. And because he did that, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands nailing it to the cross, and by doing so, he disarmed the rulers. This is talking about demonic forces, the devil, the, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame. He stripped them of their rights over us. He stripped them of their claim over you. And so this is the freedom that we get to walk in that God has made us alive in him and he's canceled the record of our debts and he's disarmed Satan and all these elemental spirits. And so all the devil can now do is go, oh, but you know what? Actually, if you want to really be a Christian, you can't, just, you can't just say you believe in Jesus. No, what you also have to do is you have to fulfill these things. If he can get you to believe that you have to go back under the law, the moment you fail, He'll go, you see, there it is. You belong to me again. 
He wants to claim you back again by deceiving you into adopting the law for salvation so that the moment he, you fail, he can condemn you and make you believe that God has rejected you. That's his tactic. So when we put ourselves under the law, we certainly will fail because we can't fulfill the law in our own strength. And the moment we fail, we'll feel condemned and we'll feel far from God. And that's what the devil wants you to believe. That's his tactic. So Paul says to them in Colossians 2, please understand that Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. And you're not dependent on law keeping for righteousness. You are righteous. You have a relationship with God. You can walk in righteousness. It's who you are now. So don't let the devil come and lie to you and condemn you trying to cut you off from Jesus. Don't let him leverage a debt that's already been paid. So therefore, and this is a big therefore, in Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let other people come and create hurdles for you to jump over and, and hoops for you to jump through in order to say, if, unless you jump through this hoop, you're not right with God because you're right with God in Christ. You know when you go to a wedding and you get seated with people that you don't know? It can go one of two ways. It can be a great night and you can make new friends and that's happened to me many times, but it could also go south. And it could end up being a difficult conversation. Or I had one of these moments that, that went south about two months ago at a wedding. I was seated, we were seated next to a couple, and they looked great, young people. And we were chatting to them and found out they were in ministry at one point. And we were really, you know, hitting it off. We were walking to the, to the buffet to get the food and kind of holding up the whole line because we are talking so much, whatever. And then at one point, I was like, oh, what church do you guys go to? And they said, well, we go to church on a Saturday. So, oh, that, that's awesome. You must be a pumping church so full. You don't even have space for services on Sunday anymore. Now you're meeting on Saturdays. And so I said, so is that, is that like a practical thing or is that, is, that a, is that a theological thing? And the countenance of the conversation changed. And the lady looked at me and she said, it's theological. And there's some days where I'll let it go. But this wasn't one of those days. Really? How so? Show it to me in the scriptures. No, it's the Sabbath. We have to observe the Sabbath. Otherwise, you're not loving God the way that God wants to be loved. And if you don't keep the Sabbath, then I'm like, well, then what? I'm no longer a part of Christ. So, so, so I was like, okay, so, so let's open the scriptures. Martin Luther himself said, if you can prove to me from the scriptures that what I've said is wrong, I will throw my own books into the fire. Show me from the scriptures. Where does it say that I need to, in the New Testament, keep the Sabbath? He said, open your Bible again, Romans 14, let's go. One man esteems one day above another, and another man esteems every day alike. Each one must decide and be fully convinced in his own heart how he is to serve God. 
In other words, if you want to make one day and set it apart in order to worship God on that day, that's a beautiful thing. You're God's servant, not mine. Worship Him that way. That's great. But if I decide that I want to worship God every day and not necessarily behold one specific Sabbath day, but I want to esteem every day and live each day to the glory of God, then I'm going to do that in the way that I serve Him. The point is, it doesn't matter whether you do it on one day or on every day, but the point is that you worship God as your heart leads you. So I'm good with them going to church on a Saturday. Just don't tell me that I have to do it lest I be cut off from Christ, which is exactly what this says. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. I took them to Hebrews 4 showed them that Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the rest we've been waiting for. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Later, I gave him my, my number. I didn't know how that was gonna go, but I gave him my number and he messaged me. And like most people that have adopted a philosophy, he probably got it from his pastor they live in Krugersdorp, but they go to a very little church somewhere in Pretoria because they have to drive past 10,000 churches to find the one that's preaching that nonsense. And, and I told him that. And I said, also, if you're going to be faithful to the Talmud, please walk there every Saturday. Um, it was a fun night. But anyway, I gave him my number. I gave him my number. And he sent me a very long WhatsApp message with a lot of things. And I honestly wasn't even going to take the time to read all of that. So I replied. I said, but this is a very long reply or a very long argument for what you claim to be an open and shut case. Before I read all of this, I want, I'm just asking you one question. Give me the scripture in the New Testament that tells me I am obligated to observe Saturday as the Sabbath. Just that one verse and I'm on your side. He took a few days and Sent long, and no, as you, I'm looking for the verse. You see, we're not swayed. We've battened down the hatches. People are not going to come and put requirements on me that the gospel doesn't require of me. And the moment I think I'm having church on a Sunday, now I must, what, feel condemned and cut off from Christ? No, no, no. I know who I am in Jesus. I know what the gospel is. And this scripture says, let no one disqualify you in verse 17, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to Jesus, the head from whom the whole body, nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If you, with Christ, died to the elemental spirits of this world, now whenever I read that in the past, I used to think dying to the elemental spirits mean, meant doing bad things, but it says Part of not dying to the elemental spirits of the world, he says, why as if you are still alive in the world, if you, if you, as if you're not dead to the world, do you still submit to regulations, rules? Here's three of them. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do you understand that sometimes being worldly means keeping rules for righteousness? Watchman Nee says there's two ways that the flesh is hostile towards God. The one is by being really bad. And the other one is by being very good. Everything that doesn't come from faith in Jesus is sin. 
So if, if you've died to the world's way of being righteous and the, the elemental spirits, then, then why do you submit yourself to regulations? Like don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. These things perish as they're being used according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are no, of no value in stopping the indulgence in the flesh. And I realized at a point in my life, the more I was trying to be better than everybody else, the worse I was becoming. And that's what Paul is saying. Church, do not be susceptible to this. Do not let people add these things to yourself. Make sure you catch this. You are no longer subject to the elemental spirits of this world. Colossians 2.23 says, These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion. If you see, if I walked in here on a Sunday and I could do this, I could honestly get up here and say, guys, you know what? I was up from 4 a.m. I always say, how do you know somebody's been up praying since 4 a.m.? They'll tell you. <laughs> I've been up since 4 a.m. praying and in the middle of the night I had a vision and I abstain from all these things because I'm very holy and God has told me that I should do this. And many of you would buy that. Many people would at least. Oh, that's a real man of God. He doesn't go to parties. He doesn't smile. He doesn't have hobbies. He just sits in a, in a room and reads the, the Bible. That's, that's a man of God. No, that's a self-righteous man. The moment I started to understand this, I took myself less seriously. I still struggle with that sometimes, but I took myself less seriously and I took Jesus more seriously. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. He set you free, church, so that you could be free. Stand firm, therefore, he says it again, and do not get tied up again in slavery to the law. Don't let the devil put that legalism on you again. If I can summarize this, do not look to other gods to save you and stop trying to save yourself. Hold fast to Jesus because you're alive in him and dead to the world. Amen.